Open up your Bibles to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9. Um, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. And the main thrust of kind of where we're at in Nehemiah chapter 9 is it's, it's this prodigal son moment, if you will, where the, the exiled Israelites have come home to the Father. They've rebuilt Jerusalem. And, and instead of it being this, this moment where there's wrath being poured out and judgment and God's just scowl over them in condemnation, instead it's this celebration, it's this, it's this rejoicing. And so instead of getting the fury of the Father when they return home from exile, they're commanded to feast. And where we've been at in our text the last uh, three weeks is we've seen is that there's been like this four-week revival that's taken place with the people of God. They gather in the tens of thousands outside the water gate for multiple days to hear Ezra read from the book of the law. And then they discover the Feast of Booths. Uh, celebration around the fall. And so they celebrate that for seven days. And uh, we talked about that last week. I won't go into too much detail, but in and around Jerusalem, they made these makeshift uh, uh, tabernacles and tents symbolizing God's provision for their ancestors in the wilderness. And key detail for that was they did it with very great rejoicing, that this Feast of Booth celebration was unlike any Feast of Booth celebration going all the way back to Joshua, son of Nun. So they, they were probably selling merchandise, trucker hats, T-shirts, 445 BC, Feast of Booths, off the chain, one for the record books, okay? So that's where we've been at. That's a quick recap of where we're at. And so all that to say, when we go to Nehemiah, turn the page here, Nehemiah 9, it seems like our text today is kind of like a hard downshift, if you will, Right? It's like this party's rocking, the music's glowing, uh, going, and people are excited. All of a sudden, you hear that record scratch. You know, lights go on, music stops, and you're like, what just happened? And what we see in our text is just two days after this rocking Feast of Booth celebration, God's people corporately gather in fasting, in sackcloth, and ashes to publicly confess their sins. And if you've been following along with us and you understand Nehemiah 8, you understand that when they first read the law, they all began to weep with conviction over their sins. But then they got a command from Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites. They said, don't mourn, rejoice. This day is holy to the Lord. Celebrate the fact that we've come home. And so you might be saying, why now are they doing the opposite? Why now are they shifting from rejoicing to like confessing sin and wearing sackcloth and dirt on their heads? So here's how I'm going to explain that. Quick question. Who here has run a tough mother before? Anyone here run a tough mother? Yeah, only a few of you. Um, everyone else were the wise ones in the church, all right? So uh, about four years back, I ran a tough, I run uh, a few tough mutters. And that was that jab at myself. Don't be mad about it. But we actually ran a transit church tough mutter. We took a team. Uh, we're the transit church. There's a few of you here. Um, and a tough mutter is basically a perfect description of foolish living, okay? Where... You leave the safety and the security of your family and your wife and kids with a roof over your head, and you spend money to run 10 miles through these muddy, filthy, bacteria-laden obstacles to get covered in mud. You're risking torn ACLs, herniated discs, um, and oh, by the way, the last obstacle is this outdoor hallway of wires that are electrified. So it's, uh, it's taser wires that you have to run through and not get knocked out. And you do that for fun. You do that, you chose to do that. And you need to ask Nick Bumgarner, a treasurer, how that last obstacle worked out for him a couple years ago. Thank God that he's still here with us today. Um, 
So anyways, after this tough mutter, uh, your time in exile, you come home. And there aren't any showers at the tough mutter. So you have to drive with all of that filth on you the entire way back to your house, a couple hours back to your house. And so you come home and your spouse, figuratively speaking, is super excited you finished. Like, oh, thank God you're alive. Right? Like, you made it home. I'm so excited you're home. You're probably starting. Let's rejoice. Let's talk about how it went. Let me make you food. And now, oh, by the way, you smell disgusting. Right? Like, like there's something that's going to hinder our fellowship in this house. And it's not me. It's, it's choices you've made that brought something on you. And so let's get you cleaned up. Let's get you healed up. Let's bandage that gash in the forehead, you know, that limp you got, and let's, and let's clean you up so that we can be restored to full, reconciled relationship. And oh, by the way, please don't go back to Tough Mudders, okay? Leave your life of sin. <laughs> so that's God's heart for us. I think that's what we're seeing in our text today is God's heart is getting his people cleaned up and healed up so they can be fully restored to fellowship and communion with him. And that's what confession, we're going to be looking at confession today. That's what confession is all about as a child of God. It's getting a fresh start, a clean slate for the sake of restoration of fellowship with God. And before I go any further, I just want to say this. You've heard me say this before, but as we're talking about confession, it's always important to say this. You might be saying, what's the point of confession? Jesus died once and for all for my sins. My sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. What do I have to confess anymore? And so there's a difference that we need to realize between our eternal union with God and our experiential communion, our fellowship, our relationship with him. Does that make sense? So eternal union with God is that I am in Christ Jesus. I have been adopted to the family of God and never to be unadopted. Right, that's secure, okay? And experiential, so that, that, like, I will never lose that status. I can't sin my way out of the grace of God now. I stand in his grace in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, amen, okay? But there is a difference between our union with Christ and our communion, our fellowship with him. If you know, just as well as I do, that any interpersonal relationship will have conflict that comes through sin, and that sin will cause division. And the only way for fellowship and vibrancy to come in that relationship is through confession and repentance. And so confession is an opportunity for us to come to God, acknowledging our sins, saying, God, we want to start afresh. We want to turn from our sin and turn back towards you and receive that forgiveness. Clean us up, heal us up so we can chase harder after you. And so Psalm 139, 23 says this. This encapsulates, I think, the whole heart behind confession. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so today in our text, the people of Israel publicly gathering to confess their sins before God and clear a centuries old account with their God, their home. And now it's time to get cleaned up so that full restoration can happen. So three things, three points if you're taking notes for my sermon before we read and dive in. Point number one, true confession begins with contrition. Secondly, true confession is communal and clear, not individual and vague. And thirdly, true confession starts and ends with God. Let's read this text. Verses will be on the screen, and then we'll pray and dive in. Nehemiah 1 through 3. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession 
and worshipped the Lord their God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you, God. We bless your name. We thank you for the celebration of baptism, God. Just the fresh reminder that we've been cleansed, we've been forgiven, we've risen to new life in you, that you have laid claim on us, God. That all of us here who are in Christ Jesus are here first because you pursued us, you called us, you first sent your son, Father, to die on our behalf so that reconciliation is even possible. It's because you moved first. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way with our hearts, lift up our chins, open up our eyes, open up our ears, have your way with our hearts through your word today, Lord God. We want to follow you. We want to look to you. We want to lay aside all the sins that easily entangle us and trip us up from following you, God. So may that happen today, Lord God. So we love you, Lord. We pray your blessing over this time. Would you increase and would I decrease up here in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, point number one, true confession begins with contrition. The first thing that sticks out is not just that they publicly gather to confess their sins, but there's key details in verse one about how they gather. They assembled, it says in verse one, with fasting and sackcloth and a bunch of dirt on their heads. And so fasting, real quick, they weren't fasting from Netflix. They weren't fasting from social media. Uh, They weren't fasting from the news. That's not actually, uh, you can do that. I highly recommend that. But a true biblical fast is fasting from food. They were fasting from food. They were liquidating themselves of actual physical strength, physical nourishment, so that they could fully rely on God's supernatural strength, his spiritual refreshment. They're saying, I need spiritual edification. I need spiritual nourishment more than I need physical. They're liquidating themselves of physical comfort and physical strength. Sackcloth. So they were wearing, I don't know exactly how this, they knit these things, I don't know how this turned out, but if you know what the, the material with burlap, sack, like get a sack of potatoes, and like that itchy coarse material, so when it says sackcloth, they would make these, I guess, sweaters out of like goat fur, goat hair, not fur, sorry, all you farmers are like, you just say fur? Uh, <laughs> goat, goat hair, and what that symbolized was, you would put this on, and it was crazy uncomfortable, right? Like anyone here remember like in fourth, when you were like in fourth grade and your mom had this really itchy sweater she'd always make you wear around Thanksgiving, like the Thanksgiving meal, and you're just squirming the whole time. You're like, oh my gosh, is there like, like a thousand ants in this thing? What's going on? I'm just itching. And then, and then all of a sudden the next year your mom lost it because you buried it in the backyard, you know? Um, that's the whole reason they would clothe themselves in sackcloth. What that symbolizes is this is they're saying, just as uncomfortable as I am in this goat fur, itchy, ugly Christmas sweater, I'm uncomfortable with my sin. I'm transitioning from being okay with my sin. I'm transitioning from being comfortable with my sin to saying, I want nothing more in my life than this discomfort of my sin to stop. I want this to be removed from me. I want this to be taken from me. I'm not comfortable anymore with my sin. And then lastly, earth and ashes. They would legitimately grab dirt and they would cover their heads and their hair and their forehead in dirt. They covered themselves in dirt. And what they're doing with that is this is confession. They're coming into agreement. The fact that, hey, we've sinned. We're coming into agreement that we've transgressed God's law and that our deepest need now is cleansing, is purification. Like we stink, like we smell like we just ran into mud or we just rolled around in the mud. So just as much as we need physical cleansing, we need God to come and purify us of our sins and give us fresh 
forgiveness. And so one word to describe, if I were to give one word to, uh, to describe how they're gathering, they're gathering in contrition. Contrition is genuine regret, genuine remorse and sorrow for our sins and an overwhelming desire for its removal from our lives. They're saying, come whatever it takes. I want this sin out of my life. Whatever it takes, however long it takes, so there's breath in my lungs. I'm not okay with this anymore. I want this out of my life. Contrition is kind of that, some of you have had a couple of these, that come to Jesus moment where in God and his grace to you, the Holy Spirit comes and does what the Holy Spirit does best, best convicting us of our sin. Whether that's a gross sin that's gone under the radar for a long time or, or just a sin of apathy towards the lost and comfort with our indifference towards the things of the kingdom of God. That contrition is that come to Jesus moment. It's a gift of God's grace by his Holy Spirit where our eyes are open and we finally realize just how bad it really is. So there's no more, and and then when that moment happens, there's no more excuses. There's no more minimizing it or marginalizing the sin. There's no more comparing ourselves. Oh, but God, look at so-and-so, right? There's no, there's none of that. We realize, man, this is worse than I thought it was. So for the people of God, they finally realized that when Ezra began to read God's law, they finally realized just how bad their transgressions were before the Lord. And they realized that it was apathy. It was their ancestors and their own apathy and comfort with their sin that actually led to the exile. That's what led to the exile. Simply put, they and their ancestors simply just got comfortable with sin. Their ancestors got comfortable with just a little bit of sexual sexual immorality. Their ancestors got comfortable with a little bit of pagan idolatry, a little bit less and less of Jesus and more and more of the the ethos and the worship of the culture. Uh, uh, They got comfortable with gross neglect of the poor and the marginalized in society. And that apathy towards sin brought absolute devastation. I mean, like, like literally the story, like absolute devastation to Jerusalem. Burnt to the ground, people of God sent into exile in Babylon. So this is the principle we learn before we transition to our next point. The principle we learn this is you and I either need to get uncomfortable now with our sins or the ruin that sin will bring will bring back discomfort. So pay now or pay later. Galatians 6, hopefully you all know it. It says God will not be mocked. He will not be. This is written to Christians. God will not be mocked. You and I will reap what we sow. We'll reap after we sow, and we will reap more than we sow. And we can sow to the Spirit, things of the Spirit, things of the kingdom of God, and we can sow to the flesh. And when we sow to the flesh, bless you, and when we sow to the flesh, we reap destruction. And so God's wrath, God's judgment has fallen on Christ. But as children of God, God's discipline to us is not a magic eraser marker to his kids escaping the consequences of their sins. Father disciplines those he loves. And that's what it means to walk in fear of the Lord, is that I know God will not be mocked. If I go and do these things, who am I to say that God's going to give his kid a free pass from the consequences of those decisions? And now, instead of that, I don't want to keep a bunch of condemnation on us this morning. We have to realize it is God's love for us that he calls us to confess and repent of our sins. It's his love for us. He doesn't want us living comfortably with things that bring ruin into our lives. And if you love someone and you see that they are bringing ruin into your lives, the most loving thing you can do is say, turn from that and turn to that which will bring you life. Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32. I love this. Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. 
Look at the heart of God. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Watch God's heart. You cry. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Sin brings death. Sin brings destruction. Turning to God brings life and life everlasting, not just to you, but to everybody around you. And so today, before we take communion, we're going to have a time to go silent. Let some turning happen today. Invite the Holy Spirit, 139, to, to come and search your heart and say, oh, Lord, search and see if there's anything grievous in my, in my heart, anything that's grieving you, Holy Spirit. And would you, would you bring light to that where I'm blind so that I can turn from that and lead me in the way of everlasting. So first point, true confession always starts with contrition. Let's get uncomfortable with our sins. And if we don't have that, invite the Holy Spirit to come. And that's something that I set a timer on my phone almost every day to pray. God, would you send out laborers to the harvest and would I be one of them? And in that prayer, I include and I carpet bomb my own heart and say, God, would you forgive me and remove the apathy in my heart for the lost? And would you make me an evangelist? And would it be love for the lost that trumps my fear of man and my love for their approval? It starts in prayer. It starts in humility. God sees our apathy, and he knows, he knows just how bad it is. But bring your heart to him saying, God, I acknowledge this, but I don't want it anymore. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two is true confession is communal and clear, not just individual and vague. And so notice in verse two, verse two of our text, it says something kind of shocking. It says they separated themselves from the foreigners. Now, nobody panic or get triggered. Let me explain this, Okay? So the reason they separated themselves from non-Israelites is this public confession. This was a family deal. This was a family intervention. This, was, this involved the Israelites, meaning this. The transgressions being confessed belonged only to the Israelites. So nobody else, they, didn't, they, they, they couldn't contribute anything. The, the iniquities, the confessions, the, 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 the sins that needed to be confessed before God were Israelite sins. So therefore, they separated themselves saying, listen, this is our mess. This is our family's mess that we need to confess, not yours. And what's interesting in our text, and when I say our text, I mean all of Nehemiah 9, okay? If I read all of Nehemiah 9, we'd be here till 12 o'clock. It's a long one. So I'm going to dive in and out of the whole chapter, but focusing on verses 1 through 3. And what's interesting in our text is that they stood for a quarter of the day, it says, to confess their sins. But then if you look at the rest of the chapter... They actually didn't, we don't necessarily see them just confess their sins. For 30 plus verses, they confess the sins of their ancestors. They confess the sins of their fathers. Like if you read all of Nehemiah 9, they specifically, not vaguely, corporately confess their family's sins all the way back to the Exodus wilderness. And so they recap each major historical moment and confess before God how their ancestors responded to God's salvation, to God's provision, to his protection and covenantal love. Instead of responding with love and obedience, they responded with a cold shoulder and wickedness. And so I'll recap. Here's the highlight reel of their confession. It's, it's pretty juicy, all right? So here we go. Our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. This is all from Nehemiah 9. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey they were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them. They made a golden calf and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. They committed great blasphemies. They were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets. They committed, again, they committed great blasphemies. 
After you had given them rest, they again did evil before you. They turned a stubborn shoulder to you, so on and so forth. You get the picture. This confession is brutally honest. This is like a no-holds-barred confession, right? Basically, what they're saying is, all right, God, we're, we're coming clean. We're going to be fully honest here. Our ancestors were murderous, rebels, who hated you, who hated your law. And instead of loving you, they, went and they left your love and grace and worshiped demons. They worshiped false demonic gods. That's how your people have responded to your kindness. That's how your people have responded to your steadfast love, covenantal love for them, is they've chased after other false demonic gods to their own destruction. There's no revisionist history here. Oh, this is kind of what happened. Let me sugarcoat it. No, they, um, they're being brutally honest. So that's why confession needs to be specific and clear and honest. So I have three kids at home, and uh, there's a few times, this doesn't happen often, but usually you're just refereeing. I might as well wear the zebra outfit and have a whistle. And people are like, these kids are just calling fouls all day. They're just calling fouls. Hey, I was tripped. Hey, you know, misconduct, cross-checked in the back, and so on and so forth. And so, if you have kids, you're like, man, preach, amen. All right, so, recently, a few weeks back, uh, I saw actually what happened out of the corner of my eye. It was like this, like, it was this moment of omniscience as a father. So, I saw everything that happened in that moment, and then I saw the full sprint to the referee. And I'm like, I am not going to say that I saw this. I want to see the, 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 the spin that's, that's taken on this, Right? Of like older sibling pushing younger, you know, like full out cross check to little Nick's back and say, hey, what looked like pushing dad, what looked like shoving, I was helping him to the floor to help pick up his toys, you know. I'm like, no, 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 no. I saw the whole thing. I know you can't fool me, right? And so the reason I share that is when we come to confess to God, he's omniscient, he saw it. We're not informing him, Right? Like, hey, I know you didn't see this, but let me lie, let me lie to you about actually what happened. It wasn't actually as bad, okay? Like, he knows. And you just see it externally. He knows what's happening in your mind, in your heart. You're not informing God. You're coming to agreement with God. Say, hey, that was wrong. God, would you forgive me? Would you help me not do that again? I need your forgiveness, God. I know that grieves your heart. I know that's antithetical to loving neighbors, pushing my younger brother to the ground. Would you help me? So you're not, we're not informing God like he's ignorant. No, he's omniscient. We're acknowledging fully and honestly. So if we come to confess our sins before God or to one another, it serves us no purpose to sugarcoat it. We need to call it what it is because God already knows what it is. So it begs the question, uh, shifting gears here. Why in the world are the people of God gathering in a moment of confession to like confess the sin of their like great, 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 great grandpa, right? And then their great, great grandpa, and then their great grandpa. Like, wait, 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 what? What is that about? Right, and there's a ton of debate on this on the topic of like generational curses and sins. And, you know, Exodus 20, God says, the, the, the iniquity of the fathers I'll pass down to the third and fourth generation. Uh, I'm not going to go into that, all right? Uh, but if you want to study more about that, I'd love to point you to some good resources. We see that, this theme clearly in scripture of uh, generational brokenness going down the lines. We see uh, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, uh, Nehemiah 9, 2 Chronicles 34, and we see it throughout God's scripture of that, hey, there's generational brokenness, there's links in a chain, okay? So we see that. There's not anyone making it up. Go read your Bibles, okay? It's there. The principle I want to hone in on, I want to hone in, I want to hone in on a principle. It's two words. 
generational impact. Generational impact. All of us will make decisions in our lives. And let me say this. I am not saying this to condemn anyone. I'm saying this to inspire us. To show you that your life matters immensely to God. And that your yes to Jesus matters immensely to those around you. It matters immensely to those who haven't even been born yet. That your life has significance. Your life has purpose. Your life has meaning. Your life matters for generations. Okay, so that's why I'm saying this. But what I'm saying, getting at is this. All of us will make decisions in our lives that will release either brokenness or blessing to the generations that follow us. I mean, you can be a naturalist, not even a Christian, and understand that principle, right? That the decisions we make will affect the next generation. So what I'm getting at is that you and I are not an island. That your individual choices have corporate consequences, not just for you, but everyone around you and everyone after you. And so what I'm getting at is there's no such thing as private sin. That doesn't, you're not an island. You don't sin in private because everyone around you gets the overflow of what you do in private. We get the overflow, right? Uh, I had a mentor friend of mine talking about my walk with the Lord. And he says, hey, man, when you miss out of that, that time of devotion with the Lord, it's not just you missing out. It's your wife who misses out. It's your kids who miss out. It's your church who misses out. There's no such thing as private sin. What we do in private has, man, it's because everyone else gets the overflow of our private life. Whatever's happening here, out of the overflow, the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Okay? So what I'm getting at is, is we have this precious gift of generational impact and influence. And so let me illustrate this for you. I was driving my oldest daughter, six years old, to the school. And we were running a little bit late. And it was funny that I mentioned that y'all being late to church last week. And I was late to drop my kid off at, at school. Funny how that works, all right? And so I'm a little, a little tense, you know? Like, hey, I, don't want, I don't want to go see the principal and we're going to do like a little tardy thing, you know? And so I'm, I'm rushing a little bit, and we're at the one light. It takes six minutes to get to the preschool, uh, the private school, which is hilarious because I shouldn't have been late. Anyway, so we're at this, the one light to uh, turn left, and then we make it to the church where the school is at. And out of nowhere, we're stopped to say, I hear from the back seat, come on! Why aren't you going, truck? The light is green! That's a true story, and almost verbatim what she said. Now, who do you think she learned that? Her mother, of course. <laughs> I, anyways, I, clearly it was me. And immediately in that moment, I'm going, oh my gosh, they're listening to everything I'm saying and talking. They're like, like, like that's generational impact. That's influence. In a way that is subconscious. I'm not like intentionally saying, all right, Kelsey, let me teach you how to aggressively, offensively drive. Okay, so drink five shots of espresso, go left lane, you know, like your gas pedal is just as safe as your brake, you know, like that kind of. I didn't, I didn't sit down and give her a discipleship course on road rage. She was just in my presence. So I was driving, right? It's generational impact. Before her feet can even touch the pedals to drive, she's already chirping at the people in front of her. Um, and so, returning to my text, is one of them. So, I got a little object lesson for us today. It's always great knowing a handyman when you're in a bind and you say, Hey, you have a chain. He's like, Yeah, I got just what you need, what size, and all that stuff. Okay, so, so what's happening in our text today is this this is the generation right here, not here. 
445 BC, this is the return exiles to Jerusalem, okay? And this right here is like where it all began. And where they start, they go all the way back to Exodus. We're talking almost a thousand years, okay? And so as they're confessing, they're saying, they're crying out to their Lord and they're saying, Lord, there has been generational brokenness from the beginning. Like, this is what they did in the wilderness in response to your deliverance and your provision that led to the judges acting this way, the time of the judges, which led to the divided kingdom. And here's all the crazy kings and all the crazy things that they did, sexual morality, all that stuff. And it's led to us. It's led to our generation right now. And we have inherited the devastation of their decisions. Jerusalem burned to the ground. We're exiles and we're coming home. And we participate in the same thing. They're not, they're not blame shifting. They're responsible for their own stuff. But they are acknowledging the fact that, hey, how in the world did we end up here in 445 BC? You know why I know how we ended up here? It's because of, it started, started a thousand years ago. And brokenness was just released in the generation. So why are they coming and confessing? Well, what they're doing is saying, let's flip the script, people of God. Let's flip the script. So now, here's 445 BC. Here's the people of God. Forget the history. They're confessing that. That's going to be cleansed. And now they're saying, this is a thousand years after us. And instead of that brokenness, that pattern of brokenness and rebellion and immorality and, and lack of love for the poor in our, in our land, instead of that being what we give to our kids, let it be blessing. Let it be a walk with you. Sure, so, that, so that blessing comes and blessing comes and, and the kingdom of God advances all the way so that a thousand years later, when people look back, they can say it all started at this moment with the people of God in sackcloth and ashes, confessing their sins to the Lord. That's the impact we have. That's the impact we have. That's the lesson we learn here, is generational impact. And so let me drop this chain. Turn my notes here. So my question to us, before we get ready to wrap up, is we have to realize, and I'm so excited to share this with you, not as an indictment, not as a judgment, but as an inspiration is we need to realize that there are people who aren't even born yet who will be affected by your walk with Jesus and the choices you make. All of us are going to release brokenness to our generations. That's why I shared that story, right? But we're also going to, we also have this beautiful privilege to bring blessing upon blessing to the third, to the fourth, to the fifth, to the tenth generation after us. Long after you have breathed your last breath, your life is still making an impact. Your life is still making an impact. Long after you're gone, you're still making an impact. Your life matters. Your choices matter. In our life, when we understand this, we understand, man, my life's not about me. And what a greater calling Jesus gave me to say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And let me live to, to love others and God be glorified in how I love him and love others. Now listen, I am not just talking to parents here about generational impact. This is a kingdom assignment with the people of God together. That, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in Corinthians that if you are single, you're actually at an advantage for generational impact, not a disadvantage. Right? Our case study is the Apostle Paul. He was never married. Now watch this. The Apostle Paul is still doing effective gospel kingdom advancement across the globe today. We're still, I'm not going to read the Apostle Paul. Your life is still being influenced by a man who died 2,000 years ago. Who gave his yes to the Lord. He's still advanced. The Apostle Paul is still advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. 2,000 years after he breathed his last breath. 
That's impact. Man, what we do matters. How awesome is that, right? How cool is it? Like, like, and he was single. He didn't have a family. But the people, and watch this, like, like as we just prayerfully just carpet bomb those in our lives with prayer that they come to know Jesus. And maybe it's youth ministry, maybe for your transit student leaders and, and, and a high schooler. You, you lead them to Jesus and they give their life to the Lord. When they're single and when you're single. And all of a sudden they get married and they have a kid. And they're, and they're, they're walking in godliness. That's a generation of kingdom influencers on the world just through you following Jesus. Wherever he's called you, the assignment he's given you. Generation after generation. After we have breathed our last breath, God is still using your life. And so this is a sober moment. Again, I don't want to condemn us, right? I want to inspire us to see that your life matters. That long after you have breathed your last breath, God can still use your life to bring blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says this, and then I'll wrap up with our last point. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. And so this holiday week, we have some extra time off. It would serve us well. Get time with the Lord, pen, paper, freshly roasted coffee in hand. And just say, Lord, what kind of legacy do you want me to leave? What decisions can I make that are different from the decisions I've made in the past or the decisions that past generations have made behind me? And would the, would the generational brokenness that maybe has been passed down to me, would it stop with me and would blessing come from my life to others? That's what God wants to use you for. Why is the church here? Why has God not beamed us up into heaven when he saved us? He said, you're still here. I filled you with the spirit. Now go be loose and love the socks off of the world and tell them about my love. It's the gift of impact, the gift of influence. Okay, true confession starts and ends with God. I'm going to slowly wrap up with this. True confession starts and ends with God. I'll explain what this means. A.W. Tozer, y'all got me a ChristianBook.com gift card, and I got C.S. Lewis's collection and Tozer's collection, and it's been amazing. So now I'm going to return the blessing, come full circle. I'm going to quote some Tozer to you, all right? (laughs) This is what Tozer says. Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man can see God, God must first have sought the man. We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. And I love, I love, I love this last line. God is always previous. God is always previous. This is is the story of God towards his people. He moves first. He initiates. He loves. He starts the covenant. He calls his own. And when they run and when they stray, what does he do? He runs full sprint after them, sending the prophets, calling them to repent back to his heart. He lavishes provision upon them, saying, come home, come home, come home. And after he's done everything he can to the old covenant people of God, the Father finally gives the precious gift of his son, Saying, come home and experience the cleansing, the forgiveness of your sins. Why? So that we can be restored to fellowship. God is always previous. He moves first. And if we read Nehemiah 9, the highlight reel of Nehemiah 9 in this confession, listen, it's not the people's sins. It's not the people's sins. It's God's pursuit of his people. It's God moving first. It's God moving in the midst. And it's God moving last. It's God and his actions. I'm going to give you a highlight reel. Over 25 times we see you talking about what God has done for his people. Okay, so listen. 
to this list. It's a rough list. I paraphrased a little bit, but it's, it's over 25 actions of God in Nehemiah 9. You are God alone, creator, Lord, host of heaven. The host of heaven worships you. You chose Abram. Abram didn't choose God. God says, I'm calling you, and out of you will come blessings to the nations. You found his heart faithful. You made with them the covenant. You have kept your promise. You are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers. You heard their cry. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea before them. You cast their pursuers into the depths of the sea. You led them by a cloud by day and by fire by night. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them right rules and true laws. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commandments. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go into the promised land. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You, God, in your great mercy did not forsake them. You gave your spirit to instruct them. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them land. You multiplied their children. You subdued their enemies for them. That's the highlight of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, this confession. It's what God has done on behalf of his people and in spite of his people that although they violated the covenant, God never breaks his promise. God's never unfaithful to his people. God is always keeping his word and his promise. And long before God's people could ever speak a word of confession to our God, it is only because God had already called them my people where they could speak out a confession of sin to our God. God had spoken out and called them. And he said, you are my people. So what I'm getting at is confession doesn't start with your sin. Confession starts with God's love. Confession is a response to what God has done for you and the way that he's moved heaven and earth to bring you back to his heart forever. Confession is a response to God's relentless, loving pursuit of reconciliation with rebellious sinners of whom I am the foremost. Confession isn't getting an angry God to finally turn his back. Confession isn't, okay, God's turned his back on me because I'm a sinner. And now if I confess, he'll turn again to me. No, no. Confession is understanding this. I've turned my back on God. God's never turned his back on me. And so confession is the Holy Spirit calling out and saying, turn. Turn from sin. Acknowledge that you need sin to turn from. Confess. And when you turn back, you realize God's never left you. And he's waiting with nail-scarred hands to embrace you and offer you fresh forgiveness and a fresh start. That's God. And so that's his heart. It's not getting an angry God to turn his back, back towards us. It's us turning our backs from sin and turning, turning back to our God who's never left us and promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so confession starts with God. God is always previous. And then confession finds its end with God as well. The reason we want to confess our sins is we want to be reconciled and restored to fellowship with God. And so our end goal with confession is getting more of God. And God's end goal with telling us to confess our sins to one another, that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. God's end goal is getting more of you. Is getting more of you. So the end goal of confession is not to get God off your back as some grumpy old guy on a cloud wagging his finger at you. It's not to get guilt and God off your back. No, it's to get sin off your back so that you can run more freely in full sprints of loving pursuit of the one who's already been pursuing you. It's not getting God off your back. It's getting sin off your back so that you're free to run full sprint towards your loving Savior who's never left you, 
who's never forsaken you. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says this. Band, you can come forward. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us lay us. That's what confession is. God, there's some things that are, that are kind of tripping me up in my walk with you. The things that are slowing down my pursuit of you. Transit family, prepare your hearts now to take communion. And ask the Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit. God, what are those things that are tripping me up? What are those things that are entangling me? What would it look like for me to be free from this so I'm free to chase after you and run after you? Feel the calling you have on my life. And realizing that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the wrath of God on the cross for you. And that joy was you. That joy was fellowship with you. That joy was gaining you. And that Jesus moved first. And your confession today is just a response to a God who's already run full sprint to you. And so confession is, God, remove the weights, remove the hindrances, so now I can respond in full sprint, loving pursuit of the God who's first pursued me. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, your heart is that you just want our hearts. Our heart, your heart for us is that you just want our hearts. So Holy Spirit, would you come minister to your people right now? Would you break off any condemnation or, or shame, God? Anything that was spoken in a, in a harsh, condemning tone that was not of you, I pray it would be erased right now. But I do pray the sweet blessing of your conviction, God. If there are things in our lives that bring destruction to us and those around us, God, would you, the most blessed thing you can do right now, Holy Spirit, is bring conviction, which leads to repentance, which, which leads to life everlasting. So come, Holy Spirit, minister your grace, minister your healing to our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, where we've, we've, we've chased after other things. Forgive us, Lord, where we just don't even want you in our lives, God. Forgive us, Lord, where we'd rather chase after the things of this world than chase after your kingdom, God. Forgive us, God, where we've neglected the poor and the marginalized. You, your word says true religion is caring for orphans and widows. Forgive us, God, where we've neglected your commandments, God, and cast your law over our back and saying that's actually not that important, God. Forgive us, God. For sins known and unknown, God, we just come before you just as we are. I encourage you right now, get real with God. No sugarcoating it. The real you, the real you has to meet the real God. He already knows. Come just as you are. And Lord, we thank you. In Nehemiah 9, 17, I thank you for this verse. Lord, you say, you are a God who's ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we come today to a God who's ready to forgive. And tonight when we sin, you'll be ready to forgive. And next week again when we come and we're still wrestling with the same stuff, you're still ready to forgive. That's your heart. You're gracious, God. You're merciful. You're kind. You're so unlike us, God. 
Help us to see your mercy. Help us to see your love, Lord God. Lord, let our sins not keep our distance from you today. Let our sin cause us to run to you, God, just as we are to be cleansed and embraced, God. Thank you. That's who we worship. That's who we honor. That's who we serve. That's who called us his own, a God who's ready to forgive. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what brokenness that has been loose in the generations in our lives, God. You offer fresh forgiveness today, a fresh start. What kind of God are you? You're great. You're glorious. You're majestic. You're king of kings. You're, you're holy and righteous, and yet you're a God of love and mercy and compassion and warmth. And you continually invite wayward people to come home to a feast and a celebration of your mercies that are new every morning. Lord, bless your name, Jesus.